This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Episode 4, Om Shinrikyo, with guest Sarah Hightower. This is On Belief, a podcast about cults by Karen Geyer. Episode 3, The Family, with guest Chris Johnston. Before we begin this episode, it's important to note that this episode contains frank discussion of abuse and murder. If that's not something that you want to listen to, I suggest you skip this episode. Today, Friday, marks the 20th anniversary of a nerve gas attack in the Tokyo subway by an apocalyptic cult known as the Om Supreme Truth. Thirteen people died and more than 6,000 were injured. On Wednesday, for the first time ever, Japanese police authority released the audio recording of the communication between police when the attack happened. And we want to warn viewers that uh, you may find some of the images disturbing. This is the first alert of the atrocity by the Om Supreme Truth cultists. And in the coming hour, calls for help and emergency reports would flood in as chaos overtook the Tokyo subway system. The liquid was sarin nerve gas. Five cult members had brought it in on the trains during rush hour, puncturing the packages with sharpened umbrella tips. Sarin is so toxic that a single drop can kill a person. It was being released into the air as thousands of unsuspecting commuters got on and off the trains. And within an hour, 13 people were dead and more than 6,000 injured. But as investigators later discovered, it was just the beginning of a conspiracy. The Om Supreme Truth Court planned to produce tons of sarin and disperse it in downtown Tokyo. If they had succeeded, we cannot imagine its consequence. Thirteen Om members, including its leader, Shoko Azahara, are on death row. The murder trial of the final suspect, Katsura Takahashi, began in January after his arrest in 2012. But public concerns over the sarin attack are far from over. Two decades later, Japan remains largely baffled by why the cultists, including scientists and doctors who have graduated from the country's top universities, launched the attack. And the world is worrying that the nerve gas, which is so fatal and easily produced, could bring more harm in the hands of extremists. Nathan Rogers, CCTV. That's a news hit from five years ago describing the 20th anniversary of the deadly sarin gas attacks in Tokyo subway stations. Many people only know Om Shinrikyo from this particular event in history, but it's very important to understand what the sect was about, how they amassed incredible amounts of power and wealth, and how they turned an electoral loss into one of the biggest terrorist attacks in Japanese history. 
With me today is Sarah Hightower, a violent extremism researcher with near encyclopedic knowledge of Om Shinrikyo, its splinter factions, and key figures. Welcome, Sarah. Before we get into how Om started, let's talk about what Japan was like in the post-war era and the era leading up to the Om affair, as far as freedom of religion and breaking away from state Shintoism. Japan's defeat in the war. When the emperor made his address to the nation on the radio where he, he says, okay, I might not literally be the god and we, we lost and I'm not actually the son, y'all. Like, we lost the war. People were shocked. So when America comes in after Japan's defeat, you know, and we, we allow the emperor to, to stay the emperor, but, you know, he can't call himself god anymore. And uh, state Shinto isn't the enforced religion anymore. We sort of, let's say, helped Japan adopt uh, some of our views of religious liberties and, you know, constitutional rights and whatnot. We basically drafted their post-war constitution. So they take freedom of religion very seriously. So would it be safe to say that when Ohm began, the pump was already primed? It had already been primed in, in the 60s. And what you saw in the 80s, the second rush hour of the gods, you might say, uh, that was just the second coming. That was just the second wave of, of all of these new religious movements and whatnot. But see, in, in the 80s, you also had other like pop culture booms and whatnot. You had the occult boom. You had the New Age boom. You had the ESP boom and the Nostradamus boom and Yuri Geller going on Japanese TV and bending spoons. And I mean, you just had this society that was like, you know what? Maybe you can levitate. Maybe you can bend spoons. Maybe you can achieve the final liberation. Maybe the world actually will end in 1999 and a savior will come from the East. This is all uh, pretty much accepted. Ohm was started by a man named Shoko Asahara. Can you tell us about his childhood? Okay, so Shoko Asahara was born Chizuo Matsumoto. He was born in 1955 on the island of Kyushu in Kumamoto. And uh, he was born to a large family that had uh, traditionally supported themselves by weaving tatami mats. But then uh, after the war and after the great economic recovery, you had less and less of a demand for these tatami mats. So the family kind of fell on hard times financially. And uh, he was born legally blind and one of his brothers was born legally blind as well. And at the time, you were expected to send your child to a special boarding school for people with specific disabilities. So at the age of six, he was sent off to a boarding school for the visually impaired. And he stayed there for 13 years until he graduated at the age of 20. And the 13 years that he lived at this boarding school, his family never visited, they never sent him money, they never sent him gifts, and he never got to go home and visit his family on the weekends like the other kids did. So he felt very abandoned. The reports of his behavior at school were mixed at best. Can you explain? Now, yeah, he was a bit of a tyrant. See, um, the, the closed system of this specific boarding school, it wasn't entirely unlike the, uh, the system that Om Shinrikyo would grow into when the members would depart from society at large and, and just become shukesha for Om. So what he learned and what he crafted and the tricks that he would he would do there at this uh, school for the blind, he carried that with him over into Om Shinrikyo once he started his own system down the road. But uh, he, he would uh, make people fight and tell them it was professional wrestling. He would uh, take uh, the blind people out and say that he was running errands for them out of the kindness of his heart and then turn around and demand money. 
And uh, by the time he graduated, he had about 3 million yen stashed away. So he was pretty good at what he did. He was a smart cookie. So what happened next? He decided that uh, he was going to try to do the uh, Tokyo University entrance exams because he still wanted to be a politician. But before he goes to Tokyo University to try to take those exams, he goes back home to Kumamoto. And he has an older brother there uh, who's also blind. And the older brother has this studio that's doing traditional acupuncture and traditional healing stuff. And he learns a bit under his brother there, but it doesn't really work out. He has too many problems with his family. And he has uh, personality issues, you might say. So he, he leaves Kumamoto again. And that's when he goes to Tokyo. And that's where he meets uh, the woman that would become his wife within a year. And he marries Tomoko, who he met at a cram school when they're trying to, you know, study to pass these exams. And then uh, within a year, he's married and he has his first child with Tomoko. Tomoko's family had a bit of money, so they they gave him enough money so that he could start his own herbal remedies studio and uh, basically uh, do the stuff that he uh, sort of picked up from his brother when he went back home to Kumamoto. And uh, he, he sort of supports his family doing that for a bit, but he's selling these hack remedies at unfair prices and he keeps getting hit with these uh, these violations. So once the business folds for the second time, uh, that's when he starts focusing more on the new religious sort of thing and uh, the new age sort of stuff. And he starts opening uh, cram schools and self-development seminars that would eventually become Om Shinrikyo. So around the time that he's, uh, he's getting hit with the, uh, the pharmaceutical laws violations, he joins this new religious movement called Agonshu. Now, Agonshu was one of, the, one of the biggest, and he learned directly from Kiriyama, and he was like, oh, oh, this is incredibly me. This is a thing that I could do better than Kiriyama. And he, he starts to think like, I would want to be a lawyer or I would want to be a religious leader. And he starts getting really, really, really into the religious sort of thing and the new age religion sort of thing. He starts studying just all sorts of religions. So you you have the, uh, the, the Phoenix Seminar, which was sort of like a cram school and a study circle that may or may not give you ESP if you do it right. And then you have the uh, the Om meeting, the Om no Kai. And then once he starts really getting into the religious stuff, it changes its name to Om Shinsen no Kai. Om Shinsen no Kai is like this, this super yoga. So we're not doing getting into Tokyo University through studying and ESP anymore. We're doing hella yoga. And that's when he starts going on like walkabout and starts talking about how he's getting these visions and stuff. He's sort of cribbing from the Kiriyama playbook. But the Om Shinsen no Kai era in around 1986, that's when he starts getting the key members that would become his inner circle that would, you know, go on to become uh, the biggest players. What really sort of started to push it uh, like over the edge and into just full blown cult territory was when he already had these little uh, yoga studio facilities popping up all over Japan from like Om Shinsen no Kai, and they start making their own propaganda and whatnot. And he goes over to India, or like the Himalayas, and he comes back and he says, I have achieved the final liberation. I studied under a real dude. We're like the sacred circle of mountain wizards now. And people just believe it. They're like, oh man, you're really good at yoga. And then you left and then you came back and you're telling us all these stories about how you achieved the final liberation. This checks out to me. I'm totally on board with this. And that's when Al-Sahara starts to realize, like, oh, oh, I think I found something good here. Om targeted a very specific kind of follower. Uh, we would call them nerds. Japanese people would call them otaku. Uh, 
they used anime, they used manga, and they used ads that were placed in science fiction magazines. Can you explain a little bit about that recruiting style? Yeah, the, the reason that I, I list the uh, the sci-fi boom and the occult boom and the Nostradamus uh, doomsday boom, like all of these things together, is because they, they all sort of went hand in hand. It, it was all sci-fi and occult, which were, you know, kind of culturally accepted and extremely popular. So they uh, they would put advertisements at first in these publications. One was called Twilight Zone and the other was called Moo. Because you had Atlantis and Moon. It's just all of these O parts and these these various like, you know, occult phenomena type things. And that appeals to a specific sort of otaku, you might say. But at the same time, it wasn't it wasn't entirely niche. Because bits and pieces of, of these these things, I mean, they're popping up in in major, major pop culture sources at the time. One of the claims that Asahara made was that following the own path could cure or even prevent disease. Asahara was claiming that, you know, whatever he was doing could cure diseases back when he was selling overpriced hack remedies in the in the late 70s and the early 80s. So it wasn't anything specifically new when he was doing it in a cult setting and they're doing it through breathing exercises or by having people pay thousands of dollars for his bathwater. If you were a practitioner and you still managed to get sick, was that your fault? No, it's uh, it's it's your fault or it is the world's fault because of karma. So you, you didn't cut enough karma, you didn't suffer enough. And uh, Asahara would also say that, you know, some things just can't be avoided. So it's more of a question of like cognitive dissonance, I would say. What if you were a follower and you had a very serious disease? It really just depends on the circumstances or, you know, uh, I want to say in the late 80s and especially in the early 90s, once they got like Hayashi and Nakagawa on board, they, they had their astral healing institutes. So if, if you were actually ill, if you actually did have cancer that or, or Parkinson's or something like that, you, you would go to an Om Shinrikyo hospital and be seen by, by actual doctors and physicians but they weren't doing your standard medical treatment. They were doing Ohm's sort of medical treatment. I was very much informed by Ohm, and Asahara always had the last say. So if, if it wasn't your fault and, and you were just sick, you guys would say maybe you were sort of a martyr. And uh, they would still talk about how he helped ease your pain at the end. As Asahara expands Ohm Shinrikyo, people move in. Describe for me what their day-to-day life is like. Okay, work. It was all about the work. Depending on which uh, facility you lived at, whether you were living at the Satyang complex at the at the foot of Mount Fuji, or whether you were just living in one of the smaller facilities dotted around Japan, first and foremost, it, it was work. You barely slept. The OM propaganda was piping through the speakers constantly. You were printing flyers and handing them out and, and paste like pasting flyers all over the town to try to help raise your rank and get good karma and cut your bad karma. You ate maybe two meals a day, and it was just uh, boiled rice, veggies, and gluten with some soy and some salt, and you did training. You were constantly training. So your schedule was wake up if you slept, do your prayers, do your yoga, go to this class, listen to this lecture, and then do whatever work the person ahead of you told you that you had to do for that day. 
and the kind of work you did depended on how high your stage was and uh, what your particular abilities were. If you were more useful, you had a higher stage and you would do different kinds of work. For more on this episode, including the rest of the interview, bonus episodes, and bonus material, including production notes, head over to patreon.com forward slash K-A-R-E-N-G-E-I-E-R. You can find Unbelief on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can visit the website at onbelief.com.